flesh. We looked at what that means in very numerous different uh, passages in the New Testament. Today we are going to look at the passage in the New Testament that deals with the details of marriage, the institution itself, and how God looks at it, how the Apostle Paul instructed the churches. He gives some additional information from what Jesus Christ talked about, what it talked about in Genesis, because as you see in front of you, marriage, the complications. I was joking with some of the old folks in the early service that, oh, well, you're here and you don't know what it's talking about when there are complications. Everybody that's been married for a long time will give you the story of the tough time they went through in their marriage. Fact is, you don't have to be married very long to give those kinds of accounts. I know people that are married for less than a year and they're separated uh, or they're just plain not getting along. It doesn't take long till you realize that the closest of all human intimate relationships will have complications. I am not, and you have to understand, I am not telling you I'm giving you all the answers. I deal with this on a regular basis in my office, in counseling and talking with people. But there are basic Christian biblical principles that deal with it. If you have questions about any of this stuff, by all means, free to, uh, be, feel free to ask me. Because a lot of the situations that people find themselves in, you cannot go to a verse or a sentence or a passage and say, here's exactly what you do. But you can always deal with biblical Christian principle. And uh, that's the application of it. If you were to look at the relationship of marriage, we would look at Ephesians chapter 5. I'm not going to do that in this series. We've talked about that in the past. We'll probably deal with it again in the future. But that deals, how do we deal with each other? And what is the relationship like? And there it talks about that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And the husband is to be the head. And the wife is to be submissive. And in essence, both working together. And it quotes from Genesis chapter 2 about being one flesh. You're in it together. You're partners, companions. Everything done for the good of both and the detriment of neither. Today, the... Apostle Paul is going to deal with the Corinthian Christians. If you know anything about Corinth, it was the most down and out, and they were rich, but morally corrupt place on the earth. It was a seaport. People from all over the world came there, and every kind of sin and debauchery that could be found was found there. The Christians there had to deal with the complications. And the Apostle Paul gives some very explicit instruction. Now, I have 41 minutes. There are 40 verses here. We are not going to deal with all of them. Those that have been around for a while know that I have a hard time getting through a few verses in a sermon. But we're going to deal with all 40 verses. There are some parts that we're going to kind of do a skip over, but uh, we're going to look at each one of them. The key thing that the Apostle Paul is going to deal with in this passage is what about abandonment? Last week we talked about what if the spouse is immoral? What can I do? What should I do? Today we're going to look about about abandonment. Many people teach, and I do not believe that these are correct biblically, that if a spouse is immoral, you can divorce them, or if they abandon you, that gives you the right to go on and do whatever you want to do. I do not believe either one of those is a correct interpretation of the scriptures. 
I know there are hard situations. I am not standing up here telling you I have all the answers. I am just telling you what I see in Scripture. And um, if you want to talk about it, I'm more than willing to do that. I've been doing that for a long time. But I realize that in marriage, there are a lot of broken-hearted, lonely, unhappy people. I remember back when Jack Wurtson was alive and we were, my wife and I were at Word of Life. He had a saying that he said a few times while we were there. He said, single blessedness is better than double cursedness. Because there is this concept, and I believe it's in the human soul somewhere, that if I get married, I will live happily ever after. Isn't that what fairy tales are based on? By the way, I believe marriage should be a joyful, happy relationship. But the truth of the matter is, just because you're married does not equal happiness. It just simply doesn't. Marriage, as anything else that's worth being a part of, requires a lot of work. And it does. It requires trusting God. It requires obedience to what God says. And so today we're going to look at some of those issues that deal with marriage. And Apostle Paul is going to deal with everything from singleness to uh, marriage, to marriage to unbelievers. You name it, he's going to deal with a whole lot of different things. So follow with me. I will be talking fast, as I usually do anyway. But uh, we're going to try to cover all verses. By the way, the first several verses I did cover in a past sermon in some detail. If you don't understand that, go back to uh, online and you can get the old sermon up. And by the way, just in case anybody hasn't heard yet, if you want copies of my notes that I have, there's like eight pages of notes here. All you need to do is email me and I'll send you a copy. And uh, that's, that's for any sermon that I do. Okay, let's start. What about marriage? Uh, What does the Apostle Paul say? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that's where we are, it says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, the Corinthian Christians had been... The church had been started by Paul. They had some questions about marriage. They had written Paul a letter and asked him questions about numerous things, one of them being marriage and the marriage relationship. He is now going to answer them. He takes 40 verses. It's a big, long chapter to answer their questions. Do we know the exact questions? No. Can we surmise what those questions are? Yes, because of the answers. Uh, It's just going backwards at it. He said... Concerning the things you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Notice he does something different than Jesus does when he talks to the Jewish people. That was a patriarchal society and it's almost always dealing with the husband as the number one. When he gets to the Gentiles who are total pagans, and that's where they came from, they're now Christians, they have a different concept. And so he deals with husbands and wives equally when it comes to the complications of marriage. And you're going to see that over and over again in this passage. Deals with it differently than if they would have been primary, primarily Jewish people. He, he recognizes and he says right up front, you know what? I would tell you that the best thing to do is remain single and celibate. It's just best to keep your hands to yourself and uh, just remain single and celibate. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. But he said, because of immoralities, let each woman have her own husband, each man have his own wife. 
Why is he saying that? He recognizes from the whole way back in Genesis chapter 2 that God put very strong desires in us. Not only for physical intimacy, but for just being close to someone else and having a lifelong relationship. It starts back in Genesis chapter 2. A man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He recognizes that. He recognizes the chemicals and the hormones and the thinking process that he has put into us. And for most people, they have a desire to be married. It's normal. It's natural. But it's not the only thing. As we go through this passage, I'm going to remind you over and over again, there should not be a negative stigma on those that have chosen never to be married. Those that are single because their spouse died and they choose to remain single. Someone that's had their spouse walk out on them and now they're single. There's not to be a stigma. In fact, is I'm going to challenge you. If you believe what I'm teaching today and what the Bible says, we need to make sure that those that are single are a part of our fellowship in every way, shape, and form. I just cannot overemphasize that. The Apostle Paul will go over this numerous times before we come to the end of this passage. But notice in verse 3, it says that each husband is to fulfill his duty to his wife. And also the wife to her husband. Now that's a really, really non-romantic word there. A duty, an obligation, something that is owed to the other person. But he says, you have an imperative, a command, that if you're married, your focus needs to be on your spouse. You need to, you have a duty Toward them. Remember I said in the past, marriage is a vow, it's a covenant, and it's a contract. Part of that contract is you have an obligation to your spouse. He is going to make that very clear at the end of the chapter. That when you're married, you have a responsibility. It can be a distraction, but it is absolutely God-given. You have a distraction that you need to take care of your husband, you need to take care of your wife. But he starts out with that. And then he says in verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Before you're married, or if you're not married at this point, it's a hands-off policy. And by the way, the older folks, those that have children and grandchildren, we need to convey that. Because the world is not telling your children that. It's saying, do whatever you want. If it feels good, do it. God says, no, 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 no. When you're single, you're celibate. Keep your hands off. But when you're married, that all changes. When you say, I do, this changes. It doesn't say, oh, your your spouse can tell you what to do with your body. But it's written in Greek in this way. That you no longer have exclusive rights to your body. Because it is insinuated. It is expected in marriage that there is a physical, intimate relationship that goes with that. It's there. And it's an ongoing one. And then it goes on. If you don't believe that that's what it's saying, it goes on to say, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come again uh, together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice what it says, and there are four things that it makes clear in this passage. First of all, it is if there is going to be a 
time when there isn't physical intimacy in a marriage. It is by mutual consent. They've agreed together. It is for a predetermined amount of time. It's not uh, open-ended. It is for a specific purpose to spend time with God. In this case, it says prayer. And it's also never to the detriment of the marriage. The detriment of the marriage would be you get tempted. The truth of the matter is, there's an expectation in marriage. That's exactly what it says. And he says, oh, by the way, verse 6, but this I say by way of concession, not command. And he goes on to say, I wish everyone was like me, but not everybody is like me. What he's saying is this. It's okay to have a time apart. You saw the stipulations on it. But he's saying, I'm not saying you should do that. He's just saying by way of concession. Sometimes you just can't think straight when all the things of this world, marriage and everything else and family, you just need some time away. Even Jesus took time away from his disciples at times to go and pray. It's not an unusual thing, but it's something that needs to be determined by both people in the marriage. But then he goes on to talk about another class of people. These are people whose spouse has passed away. It's a hard thing. People tell me all the time, it's eight years, it's ten years, and I still miss them. That makes sense to me. They've been married for a long time. They had a good relationship. They loved each other. They cared about each other. And now one's gone. That's a tough place to be. The Apostle Paul addresses them. And here's how he says it. He says it as starting in verse 8. But to the unmarried and to widows... Um, I'm sorry, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to, if they remain even as I... Paul identifies himself with them as one. I do believe the Apostle Paul was a widower. And you say, but it says unmarried and only widows. First of all, they're inseparably linked together. And the one that says unmarried is masculine. Widows is feminine. He's just simply putting together widowers and widows. We don't, they didn't call them widowers back then. They just said unmarried men. But it's the same people. It's definitely not talking about those that have never been married. He'll address that later. It's not talking about those that are divorced. He's going to re- refer to that immediately after this uh, segment. It's not violating anything that he teaches any other place. And um, he just is putting those together and saying, the, the widowers and the widows, what do they do? Well, he says, I wish they would stay single. One of the things that I have seen over the years, and if your spouse dies, you have absolutely every biblical right to get remarried. Only in the Lord, that's the very last part of this passage. But I have seen, and you think this through for a second, and some of you don't have a hard time doing this because you've been there. But if you're married to somebody 20, 30, 40 years, and if you're like my wife and I, you were a bunch of naive, stupid kids when we got married. We kind of grew up together, understood each other. And by the way, my wife knows I said that. I said it in the early service. She would agree. She was 19. I was 22. We, we didn't really know much about love. The fact is, my kids asked me, 
mom and dad, did you love each other when you got married? And I can honestly tell my kids, no, but we were starting to learn at that point because we both got saved about six months before we got married. I was starting to learn. Today, I'm still learning to love my wife. Amen, guys? Boy, that was weak. But anyway, but, but listen, listen. The, you all know the thing is love is much bigger than warm, fuzzy feelings. It's decisions you make. It's putting the other person first. The duty, the responsibility, what you owe to that other people. And it's an ongoing thing. But think about that. You grew up with this person. You knew how everything goes. And now they die. They pass on. And now you marry somebody else who grew up kind of the same way you did probably, but very different. And now you try to put those two people together. Ooh, that is a tough transition. Not a bad, not wrong, not sinful, but a tough transition. And I've seen some people that wish they had never said I do that second time after their spouse died because it was tough. Um, and it, it just is. So moving on, because I, I'm going to run out of time very quickly. Uh, but he says, you know what? It's not wrong if you are a widower or a widow and you get remarried. Because if you don't have self-control, it's better to marry than burn with passion or have lust. And so he repeats basically what he did, said in the beginning of the chapter. But what about those that are currently married? But to those that are married right now, they're in marriage and continuing. He says, I give instruction, not I, but the Lord. Uh, Yeah, not I, but the Lord. Because Christ had already talked about this, about marriage. There's going to be a future time when he says, oh, the Lord didn't give this instruction, but I am. Because guess what? It's new information to fill in the blanks. Continuing on, it says that I give instructions not I but the Lord that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not send his wife away. He looks and says, are you married? And one of the principles, and I'm going to tell you, the key principle is bloom where you're planted. Whatever circumstances you're in, whatever situation you're in, that's where God put you. That's where you are. And in that circumstance, God wants you to live for him. You may not like to hear that, but that's what this chapter is going to say. It says it at least three different ways. We'll see that later in the sermon. But he says here, you know what? There is a place that it says, if you leave, I have actually counseled someone to leave their spouse. That does not happen real quickly. Because when you do, it's a step in the wrong direction, and it can lead to really bad things. But if there's abuse and things like that, there is a time when you have to have a separation. By the way, it doesn't mean you're necessarily being divorced. It just means separating. It could be divorced, but uh, the point is this. It's not where you start. But when you do do that, it is not to leave them and go for somebody else. Most people do not leave their spouse until they already think they have somebody else on the hook. That's the way I've found it over the past 26 years of counseling people. This says, you know what? If you absolutely have to leave, if you do leave, you remain unmarried, single and celibate, or be reconciled. Why? You need to leave the door open. So if you go get remarried, you can't do that. So you're going to be single and celibate, but looking for the opportunity to be reconciled. That's what it teaches. And by the way, it flips it around and says, oh, by the way, the husband, the same way, uh, should be looking at that. 
But you say, you don't understand my circumstance. You don't know who I'm married to. My spouse is not a believer. I made a big mistake when I got married. They all told me, don't marry an unbeliever, and I did anyway. I've counseled those. It's a hard place to be. Or, we both were unsaved when we got married, and I got saved and my spouse didn't. What do I do? Shouldn't I divorce them so I can live for the Lord and serve Him fully? The Apostle Paul says, no. Or, and the way this can be translated and interpreted, it says an unbeliever, but it can also be translated unfaithful. And it is translated that way other places in the New Testament. But this is it. So we were both young Christians and we got married. I went on to serve the Lord and my spouse could care less. They're acting like an unbeliever. They're being unfaithful in many ways to their vow, to their Savior, whatever. Both of them fit. For practical purposes, that's how I deal with it. And the truth of the matter is, you can interpret it that way directly from Scripture. But here's what it says. It says, and this is specifically to those who have unbelieving or unfaithful spouses, it says this. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord. He's indicating here, Christ never identified this and addressed it. He said, if any brother, a husband, has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And if a woman has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. Why? Notice what it's saying. You're not supposed to be the one that drives them away. That is not your job. If they are consenting to live with you, you need to, to stay there. Why? I have counseled this. In fact, as I counseled this just this very week, you say, you don't understand how horrible that is, living with somebody that's an alcoholic or a drug addict or cheats on me or, and spends all the money or is an unbeliever and makes fun of me every time I want to go to church, hinders everything, yells at me if I give any money in the offering. You, I've heard all of those things and a whole lot more of them. Here's my counsel. You have a one family mission field. If you don't have time and energy and resources to do anything else in this life, in the name of Jesus, you live for the Lord and you be an example, a testimony right there. Bloom where you're planted. That's true of all of us in all circumstances. The Apostle Paul gets back to that again. The point is this. You don't just say, hey, I'm going to bail out and do my own thing. He says, no, but what happens if they leave? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses that also. Because um, he, he is going to say that in verse 15. It says that if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage. So if they leave... You're not chasing them away. You're not driving them away. You're not telling them to get away. If they leave, there's nothing you can do about it. We live in Pennsylvania. I'll tell you what, if somebody wants to divorce you, they can do it, and you can't do a thing about it. That's just the way it is. But it's always that way. If they want to leave, they can leave. By the way, people leave their spouses and never open the front door. Yeah, that's right. They live in the same house, but they've already left a long time ago. In mind and emotion and every possible way, they've already left. But here's what it says, and now I'm backing up to verse 14. 
For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now are holy. I'm not going to deal with the children part, but here's what it comes down to. Sanctified simply means set apart. You have become the testimony in that situation. That's your mission field. That's the toughest mission field I can think of. I'm telling you, it is not a secondhand ministry in any way, shape, or form. It's probably the toughest one I can even think of because it's almost beyond you because it's right there. You can't get away from it. Now it says the brother or sister is not under bondage. This is the one that causes the heartache just like except for immorality does in Matthew 19. This is the one that causes all the heartburn. It says, well, the brother or sister is not under bondage. If your spouse leaves you, you're not under bondage. They say, oh, then you can go get remarried. You're free to get married. That's not the context. First of all, if you use it that way, you violate the clear expressed intent of Romans chapter 7, the first several verses, the very end of this book, what Jesus said in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke chapter 16. It would violate all of that. But the context tells us what it means. And it's always how you deal with these kinds of things. Is what is the context? Well, look at it. In such cases, and this is in the middle of verse 15, in such cases, um, but God has called us to peace. Notice, you don't have to live the rest of your life in guilt. If your spouse left you, you don't have to live in guilt. You need to live for the Lord right there. He's called us to peace, tranquility. You say, how do you know you're right about that? I'm glad you ask. Just like in Matthew 19, Paul adds one more thing that backs it up. Look at verse 16. For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? In both cases, it says the same thing, husband and wife. And we usually think, oh, well, you'll have a testimony and they'll come to Christ. By the way, I would agree that that's the primary interpretation of it. But here's what I also believe because of the context also. And that is that you will save your husband or your wife in that you're going to be saving your marriage. Because the word save is not by itself a spiritual term. It simply means to protect and deliver. And what you're doing is you have the opportunity to lead them to Christ. And you also have the opportunity to restore that marriage. It's something that you need to keep in mind when you look at those kinds of things. Now... I mentioned that the Apostle Paul, he never used the words, bloom where you're planted. But this is what he did say. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each one in this manner, let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. This wasn't just to this particularly immoral society of Corinth. It was everywhere. He says, you know what? Where you are, what God has assigned to you, that's where you live. Look at verse 20. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. It doesn't matter where you are right now. God says, live to the fullest for the Lord. You can minister from this position. And the last one, verse 24. Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Notice he adds something. With God. You see, if you're in one of these bad situations... On your own, your knees are going to buckle. Your mind is going to wander. Your emotions are going to go dead. It's only an act of faith. That's it. It's 
with God. That's the only way you can deal with that. In fact, this is the only way you can deal with a lot of things. In fact, is one more uh, passage skipping ahead. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. The whole point is this. Wherever you are, God wants to use you. Continuing on. What about unmarried people? What about if I'm not married? And uh, this is the one I was referring to earlier. Um, God makes it clear that if you're not married, if you're married, there is something that you need to understand. And he said, because of the place that they were, the stress that the Corinthian Christians were under, he said, it's better not to get married. I want you to be free from concern, verse 32. But he goes on to say, and this is important to everybody in this audience who is married and anybody that's contemplating marriage. The next part fits all of us. It says, continuing on in verse 32, the one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Okay? And it's going to say the same thing about the wives, uh, the, the women. It says, you know what? If you're unmarried, you have a focus that is not distracted. He's not saying marriage is a bad thing and it's a distraction and it's horrible. Don't do it. He's just saying... If you're not married, you have more time, energy, and resources to focus on serving the Lord. But look what it says. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. Oh, that was horrible. How he may please his wife. His interests are divided. And it goes on to say a a number of other things here. But here's what the point is. If you choose not to be married, you can focus on doing some very specific things that us married people can't do. But if you are married, I'm going to tell you right now, next to your relationship with the Lord, your spouse needs to be priority. And if, it's, if she is not or he is not, you got something wrong. And it doesn't matter what your circumstance is. You're married, you are married, and you have a responsibility. It's the second time Paul is saying that. So don't say, well, I'm going to serve the Lord, but I'm going to neglect my wife or neglect my husband. You can't do it. You can say, my, my, my sport or my hobby or my ministry or anything else is more important. No, 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 no. says, you know what? You have a divided interest. He understands that. God gave marriage from the very beginning. And it says, you know what? If you're married, and that's where we talk about priorities. If you're married, God is always first. That never changes. But if you're married, number two is your spouse, not your work, not your ministry, not something else. If you get that, I guarantee you there'll be a whole lot more happy marriages. It's just the way it is. Try neglecting your spouse. I'll guarantee you, you won't have much of a ministry. Your work will be a drudgery. But if you put everything in this proper perspective, and that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He himself said, hey, I'm going to avoid that. I'm going to stay single and celibate. But... If you're going to do that, here's the obligation you have put yourself under. Remember earlier, it's something due. It's a responsibility. It's something you owe them. There are a couple other verses that deal with parents, but we're not going to deal with that because I'm out of time. But we do need to go to the last two verses. Because it says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. Dealing with remarriage after death, obviously. That's the context of it. That's what it actually says. But there's a phrase in there, only in the Lord. 
Grandparents, parents, friends of people who are dating young people. Oh, they look so nice together. Aren't they a wonderful couple? You know what? Might be true. The only thing is, what I'm going to tell you is this, is so many times people get encouraged to be a part of a relationship where you know spiritually they should have nothing to do with. Because the Bible is very clear, unequal yokes in spiritual things are absolutely out of the question. And so what it comes down to is you have a niece, a nephew, a grandson or, a, a grandson or granddaughter or a friend who is a believer and they're, married, they're dating somebody that's an unbeliever or somebody that's out of fellowship with the Lord. You need to say, whoa, red light, yellow light, red flag. Don't go that direction. And even if it's somebody that's been married 20, 30, 40, 50 years and they're getting remarried, you know what? Sometimes they act just like teenagers, and I'm telling you, they actually do, and get themselves in the same kind of trouble that teenagers do because they allow their emotions to overwhelm what they know to be true. Whether you're young and never been married or whether you've been married and your spouse died, it's always only in the Lord. You can't get around it. It's just the way it is. And because God knows that it brings a whole lot of problems. The fact is, he's pretty clear about that. My opinion, you'd be better off staying single. Now, I said a whole lot of things in a very short time. I know that. You may be reeling with all that. But when you go back and look at everything that's in the Bible, and that's what you have to do, look at the whole picture and put it together. Marriage good? Absolutely. From the very beginning, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's why he created Eve to start with. So that was a possibility. But that's the implication, that you're going to be in it together, partners and companions for life. Everything done for the good of both, the detriment of neither. You know I like to say that. But are there complications? You better believe it. And before you enter in, you better think about it. If you're in it, deal with it. How do you deal with it? You make sure that after your relationship with the Lord is right, you put your spouse next, above and beyond everything else. If you don't, you're going downhill. That's just the way it's going to be. Let's all stand together as we close in prayer. Father, a whole lot of things in that chapter and some that we didn't even touch on. Some nuances that we don't have time for. But Lord, I believe your principles are clear. Marriage is a sacred institution. You've given us instruction. And Father, as anything else that you've given us, whether it's ministry or our work or our personal relationship, every one of them requires attention and resources and time to make them work the way they should. I pray that we would be reminded this morning, if nothing else, that we need to put the effort out, the time out, the resources out to make sure that our marriages work. And for those that are not married, that they would recognize that it's not an inferior position, there's not a stigma to it that indicates something's wrong, but it's simply a position that we choose to live to the fullest for the Lord. I pray that you would meet each person exactly where they are 
that each of us would indeed bloom for the Lord where we're planted. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us of that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go with God.